Take your Bible, if you would, and join me today in the book of Romans chapter number seven. Romans chapter number seven. Now, just by way of a big picture, an overview review for what's taken place over really the last few months now in the book of Romans, we started out in chapter one and we were talking about these portraits of a godly man. And then in chapters one through three, we saw the dark backdrop of sin, which was a black backdrop indeed. And then we saw in chapters four and five, the dawning of deliverance, the sky actually started to change. And then in chapter six, we understood that we are free to live again. But now we find ourselves in chapter seven, And in chapter 7, we're going to find that the war actually does continue to rage on. Now, this chapter, and I'm going to say it clearly up front, this chapter is marked by a lot of debate as to who it is that actually is doing the speaking. In fact, one commentator wrote, Romans 7 is one of the most misunderstood chapters in the Bible because people read it with the attitude, it can't mean what it says. Okay, now listen, when we read Romans chapter seven, we need to understand that not only Romans seven, but the entirety of scripture does in fact mean exactly what it says. So as we move throughout this chapter, there are many who began to debate, who is it that is doing the speaking? And we need to be clear about this because some were saying, well, this is the carnal man that is speaking or even the unsaved man that is doing the speaking. Some say this is the Jew that is still living under the the demands of the law. But again, if we just take this, this normal understanding and interpretation of Scripture, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul refers to himself in some way, shape, or form with the words I or me or, or some similar reference nearly 50 times in chapter 7. I believe very strongly that this passage of Scripture is saying, I'm talking about myself as a representative of mankind. So the title of our message today as we begin Romans chapter 7 is this, we hold these truths to be self-evident. We hold these truths to be self-evident. There are some things that we just know intuitively. So how many of you have ever done this before? It's, it's kind of humorous if you do it. Um, have you ever had a puppy that you wanted to teach to swim? You ever done that? Now, how many of you ever just do the throw the dog in the water model of, okay, I don't recommend that, but, but I think it works, okay? More often than not, how many of you have ever done this? How many of you have ever gotten into the water, puppy in hand, and then held the puppy up over water and seen what the dog intuitively does? What's the dog start to do if you're just holding it up? Yeah, well, we have living illustrations. Many of you are out there going, the dog paddle, Okay. Thank you for the vivid reminder that now I can see. All a dog does is when you hold it up over the water, it just starts to paddle like it is already swimming. Well, did you take it to the YMCA and put it in the guppy program so that it could learn? Well, actually what you did is 
You held it up over water. There were some things that it knew intuitively. And do you know what the Apostle Paul is about to do in this chapter? He is about to help us understand there are some things that all of us can agree, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, that we know intuitively. These are truths that are self-evident truths. In the Declaration of Independence, we read the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Thomas Jefferson is simply saying there's something that we should all agree on because these statements are true and you know they are true. Your Bibles are open right now to Romans chapter 7. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. Romans 7 verse 1 says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if... While her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now again, we're talking about these truths that are these self-evident truths. Do you know the first thing that we're going to see that is fairly obvious throughout this passage of Scripture and fairly obvious just in the world of understanding? The first thing that we're going to see is the limitation. The limitation. And by that, Paul's going to present this principle There's a principle that in the Christian life, if we finally wrap our heads around, it is a liberating principle. So the first thing that we're going to notice is this limitation. Again, in verse number one, he states the limitation. And by the way, he alludes to the principle. He says, know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. So what are these self-evident truths that we all know? Well, you know, the first thing we all know is we know the legitimacy of the law. We're looking at this law that Paul's referencing and we're saying, yeah, that's true. We get it. We understand this. Even that expression that he uses, he says, know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. The expression, know ye not, it is a a common expression. He's saying, I know you know. You, You get this already. I don't even have to explain this to you. That's the tone that the Apostle Paul's taking. He's saying, okay, now listen, we all know these are things that are self evident. He's saying that these are the things that are hardwired in our hearts and minds. Even without ever reading the Ten Commandments, we know the difference between right and wrong. Paul said it earlier for us in Romans chapter 2, verse 14. He said, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, that is the law of Moses, 
do by nature the things contained in the law. These, having not the law, are a law unto themselves. He says, listen, they're already doing the law even though they haven't been given the codified law. Okay, we, we all get this in the natural world too. So a few years ago, Julie and I were at an amusement park and we were standing in the queue to be on a ride that apparently a lot of people wanted to be on. And how many of you have ever waited for two hours or more to ride something? How many of you have ever done that before? How many of you have said, I've got far better things to do with my time? Okay, many wise people out there. Well, we were not of the wise, we're standing in line. And it's a long line. But there is next to this back and forth all around the park line that we have to stand in to, to actually participate. There is this other line right next to ours. And, and there's nobody in it. In fact, every once in a while you'd see somebody just whoom, just whip right down that line. It's this fast pass lane. We didn't have a fast pass. We were in the clearly slow pass lane. But there is a fast pass and you'd see families all and they're smiling, they're happy, they're laughing and we're not, okay? And we're looking, whenever people go by, we all look at them with some disdain, like I can't believe you're doing that, okay? It's gonna be better for us because we earned it through this line. Well, people just zipping by. There were two girls in front of us and they had been waiting in line and we're going through this whole thing, but we still have about 30 minutes to get to the end of this line. Well, we're back in this thing and all of a sudden these girls are kind of talking back and forth and then they do what we're all thinking but nobody else does. They, cl they climb under or over this railing and they get in the fast pass and they just take off and, and we didn't see any guard, you know, bringing them back. They weren't handcuffed, they weren't drug out, which all of us wanted, okay, but they went and rode the ride. What does that do to every person who is looking at what they're doing? Every person in line is saying, that is so wrong. And we talked about them for the next 30 minutes, okay? <laughs> there is some law that we understand naturally, intuitively. We even say things like, that's not fair, or that is clearly wrong. The Apostle Paul is doing exactly the same thing regarding self-evident truths, regarding the limitations of the law. We know the law is legit, we get that. And I find it interesting that Paul never condemns the unbeliever for not knowing the law. He doesn't say shame on you because you don't know the law. What the Apostle Paul does instead is he speaks to those who have not accepted Christ and says you are actually condemned for knowing the truth of God and suppressing or denying the same. Scripture is saying these truths are self-evident and you know yourself, these are legitimate truths. The law of God is legitimate. So we know the legitimacy of the law, but we also know the limits of the law. We know the law is legitimate, but we also know that it can only go so far. Remember in chapter six, we found that we are dead and buried with Christ. And now later in chapter seven, verse number one, it says how that the law hath dominion over a man. Now there's no period there. And the law does have dominion over a man, but it adds so long as he liveth. 
The law has dominion over man true so long as he liveth. Now, I'm going to use this phrase carefully, and I mean no disrespect by it, but we use it commonly. We will see something or, or hear something and we'll say, no, 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 that is dead and buried. Dead and buried. Now, I know there are people who have dead, loved ones who are buried. And I mean, no, again, disrespect by this, but we understand the expression, don't we? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, uh, that thing was dead and buried long ago. Uh, Listen, that offense that you, listen, that's, that's dead and buried. That idea, that style, dead and buried. What we mean is it has come to some absolute finality. It's not going any far. That is a case closed. Paul is teaching a principle here. He's highlighting the limitation of the law. We use the expression, you can't outrun the long arm of the law. Okay, good expression, but that expression only will take you so far. There's one place that even the law can't reach And that is into the grave. This is rather obvious. It's another self-evident truth. Okay, let's say that that we're back in the Old West. Okay, so we're living back in the days of the Old West and and I am a bank robber, but not a very good one. I go and I rob a bank and I'm walking out with a big bag of cash and the sheriff's standing right there. And he says, sorry, partner, you're going to jail. Okay, so I'm a bank robber. I have cash in hand and I'm going to jail. And, um, and then I'm tried. I stand before the judge and, and the sheriff's there. There's witnesses. And, and he says, the judge says, this is the old west. There's going to be a hanging. And I'm, I'm, the, I'm the recipient. So this is not a, a good deal for me in the least. And he puts me in jail and I'm behind bars. And the next day there's going to be a hanging. Well, that night... As providence would have it, as fate would have it, I died in jail. And so they find me and, oh boy, he looks so peaceful. Well, it's a nicer look than me hanging, and so I died in jail. And the the sheriff goes home and he tells his wife, he says, honey, um, um, the guy that was going to be hung, he, he died. And his son is a little disappointed. He's 12 and he wanted to see a hanging, okay? And um, he says, Pa, ain't there going to be no hanging? He says, no, son, the guy died. Well, I know, but isn't he guilty? Yes, he's guilty. Well, he's supposed to be hung. Yes, he's supposed, but he died. Well, I know, Dad, but can't we hang him? No, he died, okay? Well, you understand that the law now can't touch me because I died. Now, I know it's somewhat of a, a silly or potentially graphic illustration, but the reality is exactly what Paul's talking about. Paul is saying, we all know the law is legitimate. We get it. But we also know intuitively, well, you you can't try the guy. We can say he is guilty, but he died. And so there is nothing else that we can do because the man died. The reality is the law does have limits. It's only jurisdiction extends to the living. Paul is addressing the limitation of the law and by it teaching us a principle that has spiritual truth. But let's go a little bit further beyond the limitation and let's see next the illustration. And by way of illustration, he's giving us a pathway. He's saying, okay, now understand the limitation and there's a principle there. Now I'm gonna give you an illustration, Paul saying, and this illustration is actually gonna help us spiritually get from point A to point B. 
Because we want to not be where we are under the long arm of the law. Okay, we understand the law has some limits. And there's now a principle for every person who is found in Christ Jesus. Look at verse number two, Romans chapter seven. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Now, before we proceed, and so we're all on common ground and and have a, a similar understanding, look at some of the things that Paul assumes we all know. He's saying, first of all, we all know that marriage is intended to last a lifetime. He is assuming this by using this very illustration. And he doesn't take time to actually articulate all the reasons why marriage is supposed to last a lifetime. Paul is hearkening to self-evident truths. And you know, I would submit to you that even in Paul's day, that is not so very different from our day, that Paul says, hey, listen, you know, even though you're trying to play fast and loose with marriage, you know that marriage is intended to last a lifetime, hence the illustration that he's using. Now listen, the Jews in Paul's day were not free from trying to escape the bound of marriage. In fact, one rabbi wrote that if you find your wife in any way, shape, or form distasteful, you can discard of her, divorce her, just as you would refuse a distasteful meal. And clearly the Romans were no better. The Romans viewed marriage as just a means to continue on their name, but they were as loose morally as is our society today. Anything went, anything was appropriate. In fact, the more experimental you became, the more liberated, the more current, the more woke, so to speak, that you were even in Paul's day. And it's not so different from ours. So I find it wonderfully insightful that in a day when marriage was being attacked on all sides, Paul uses marriage with an understanding that you know something to be true. You know that marriage is intended to last a lifetime. This last Friday, I officiated the wedding of Jackson and Alexi. Alexis was beautiful and and Jackson was there and and it was a wonderful wedding. (laughs) It's the case with most weddings. And so I did another wedding. It was the same situation. Jordan and Katie, that was the week before. And, And I had them say words. And I have had every couple I have ever married say these words. They're the same words that Julie and I said many years ago now. I said, I, Jeff, take you, Julie, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, so long as we both shall live. That is a covenant vow before Almighty God. And it recognizes something. It recognizes illustratively 
the Christian life, that I am bound to something. Even as in marriage, I am bound to someone. Julie and I are bound, but if I die, she is free to marry another. I'm a little bothered by that, actually. Okay? I hope she's not planning anything, but, 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 but as long as I live, we are bound one to another. If I die, all kidding aside, there is no more binding. If either one of us passes from this life to the next, that picture then, that relationship is freed, free to marry another. And this is the illustration that the Apostle Paul is helping us understand. Death is that which null and voids the law. What a glorious, wonderful truth. Romans chapter 7, verse number 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Can you picture these great doors that seal heaven from all who could not enter? These doors are tall, they are wide, they are immeasurably wide. They are infinitely tall. None can enter those doors. They will swing on their hinges for no one except for one. Those doors open ever so easily for Jesus Christ, the righteous. When Christ approaches those doors, the doors of the law tell me you shall not enter therein. I can pound, I can plead, I can offer, I can work, but those doors remain sealed. But when Christ approaches, those doors do nothing but open very quickly to him and he enters with such ease and with such boldness therein I cannot because of the law enter those doors so what do I do the only way I can enter those doors is if the law has no more reach to me and the only way the law has no more reach in my life is through death and so in Romans chapter 6, I understand I have the invitation to die with Jesus, to be buried with Jesus, but it doesn't end there. I now get to be raised in newness of life, and now I, in the person of Jesus Christ, come to those doors, and those doors of the law have no more reach in my life, and I, in the person of Jesus Christ, see those doors swing easily open, and now I enter heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. Now I come with boldness. Who dare enter the throne of God with boldness other than his son, Jesus, the righteous? And so how do we come before him now? We come before him as a son with the, the carefree, so to speak, attitude. I rush into his presence with boldness and I cry, Papa, Father, God. 
Do you understand what he's saying? The law is legitimate. We understand the legitimacy of the law. We all get it. This is self-evident. But we also understand illustratively that marriage is intended to last a lifetime. But when one of those persons die, the other is free to marry another. And I died. I was buried and gloriously resurrected in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, we see the limitations and there's a principle that we get in the Christian life. We see the illustration, ah, this is a pathway to God. It is, I get to be married to another. And now let's notice our motivation. And the motivation is something natural that he carries the illustration on into. And that is produce. There's something that's supposed to happen from this new relationship that we have as the bride of Jesus Christ, the groom. Verse number four again. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should that we should bring forth fruit unto God. Well, this is my new motivation. This is my new marriage with Jesus. And there is something that I'm motivated to do, and that is to bring forth fruit. Now, I couldn't do this before. This was impossible before. I had no relationship with Jesus Christ. I was bound fast by my sin and even my righteousness, even my best efforts were before God as filthy rags. They were unsuitable to present as something acceptable to God. But I died and I married another. And now the fruit of this new union is that which I was impossibly able to produce before. I just couldn't do it how different it is to produce something when I am free from the law. Now the law tells me to produce something. It just doesn't give me the ability to do it. In fact, one poet wrote it this way. One poet said, do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. What you and I could not accomplish on our own under the just demands of the law, we now have the opportunity to see, I have the ability to rest in Christ. And this new union, as I trust him, as I obey him, as I surrender myself to him, now I produce something that is not the work of my flesh, but actually the fruit of God's Holy Spirit working in and through me. You know, he's using this this same picture, this this same original command that God gave. This is a little bit of an aside, but I believe that marriage was given primarily when God first initiated it. He gave it so that we would have this continual picture It's going to be in front of us all the time of something that is never going to be ended. And that is the the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. He's, He's saying, hey, listen, I don't ever want you to forget it. So you're going to see it everywhere. You're going to see it all the time. The relationship of Jesus and his bride and marriage is this fitting illustration. 
The bride of Christ, the church, at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, that that beautiful mid-book doxology, that the church is the means by which Jesus, our bridegroom, will receive glory in the church, world without end, throughout all of eternity. I, I think it may be one of the reasons why marriage has always been under such such harsh attack by the world. The world constantly is hammering away, now trying to redefine marriage because marriage is intended to be this proper fitting illustration, this picture. So let's go way back in time to the book of Genesis and let's go back to what is the, what we refer to as the creation mandate. What does that look like? Well, look at Genesis chapter one. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. From these two verses of scripture, we get what we refer to as the creation mandate. You say, "Well, well, pastor, what is the creation mandate? It really involves three things. Number one, to reflect. That is, you and I were created in his image. So to give God glory means that a person looks at us and has the right opinion of God. It's part of the creation mandate. We were created to reflect him. We're made in his image. But also, we're created to rule. To rule. He says, you're supposed to subdue the earth. To have dominion over. Listen, we should value the earth as good stewards. But we don't worship the earth. And we also understand that the creation is not on the same level as you are. You were created in the image of God. The the creation shows the power of God. You show the image of God. Part of the creation mandate, we're created to rule over. Third, we are created to reproduce. To reproduce. In marriage, when a man and a woman come together, which by the way, reproduction is only possible through one biological man, genetically created so, and one biological woman genetically born to do so. When one man and one woman come together, do you know what they have the potential to fulfill the creation mandate? To be fruitful, to multiply, And do you know what the Apostle Paul says? Okay, church, listen, church at Rome, as applicable to Rome as it is today, to campus church. He says, here's what you were created to do in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's your motivation. This new marriage relationship between you and Jesus, it's intended to be purposeful. It harkens all the way back to the illustration that you're looking at every day, and that is marriage as God defines it. You were created to bring forth fruit. And we start to ask, well, what does that look like? Oh, the Bible's rich with this. We'll take a moment and just mention a few, but to start bearing fruit. For, For example, your speech should be different. The fruit of our speech. The Bible says, by him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Oh, there's something that changed about what I say. 
Why? Because of my new relationship with Jesus Christ. When we start to spend time with Christ, it's natural that our lips would be giving thanks to his name. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only the fruit of our speech to God, but don't you think that the fruit of our speech to one another should reflect him? How has your speech been today to one another? The the Bible helps us understand this. Even a a person that we refer to in the Old Testament as a virtuous woman, notice what was characteristic of her virtue. She openeth her mouth with wisdom and in her tongue is the law of kindness. Has your tongue communicated this law that's universally understood? It's self-evident. Oh, that was not kind to say. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus now begins to to impact the fruit of our lips, they begin to be marked by something akin to kindness? Well, the fruit of our speech, clearly. What about the fruit of our surrender? This now becomes typical of a person who has this new relationship with Jesus. The Bible says in John 12, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Do you know there is a powerful picture there for us? Lord, I surrender myself to you. My own selfish ambitions, my own prideful desires. We sing the song, I surrender all. The fruit of our surrender. How many wonderful testimonies have you been privileged to hear that tell the story of surrender and then God's rich blessing? How about the fruit of our spiritual maturity? And by the way, that usually happens through correction. Let me say that again. The fruit of our spiritual maturity, which usually happens through our correction. You know, the person who won't receive correction, the Bible says there's more hope of a fool than a person who will not be corrected. Do you know there's something about my new relationship with Jesus that that he says as a father chastens his own son for a purpose of developing maturity. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, 11, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Exercised, that means there was some kind of correction. The wonderful thing about receiving correction is the beautiful, peaceable fruit that it produces. And I think speaking of fruit that comes from our new relationship, we'd be somewhat remiss if we didn't talk about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. What are these things? These things now are the fruit The produce of the fact that I'm no longer bound to the law. Isn't it interesting that the Bible doesn't say that the law died. The Bible says you died. And you were crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, you live. Yet not you, but Christ liveth in you. 
Are you married to Christ? Did you die? Was, was in the person of Christ buried with him and then risen with him? If so, there is therefore now, which we'll get to soon in Romans, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are not yet married to another, he has the table spread, the invitation is sent, and he invites you to be that choice recipient of a new covenant, a new vow, and a new bridegroom, Jesus, the Christ. I suspect that many here, many who are watching, would already say, Pastor, I am married to another, Jesus Christ. Then the question for us is, are we bearing fruit? And who is that fruit reflective of? The progression of fruit bearing that God gave us in his word is that we bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. This is our motivation. If your life is producing something other than the peaceable fruit of righteousness, then he asks you to repent, to turn from that which is not legitimate fruit of your rightful groom. He says, you have a lawfully wedded spiritual spouse. And as we submit ourselves once again to him, we understand our future, our new life, our new hope, and our new fruit that comes from him. We hold these truths to be self-evident. May we live in light of the same.